Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Welcome back. We are now in episode 67, Revelation 9, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 9, overview, blowing of the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, the beast, the demons, torture, and death. The eagle angel uttered its warning, woe, 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 because the downward spiral of awful is about to get so much worse with the blowing of the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. The invasion of the unseen world into our material world will be so dramatic and intense that the things we are to understand as spiritual versus literal in terms of the imagery become so blurred and intermixed that they are, for the most part, one and the same. The first woe, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had been falling to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not now have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death now flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses having been prepared for battle and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, there now chooses to come two woes after these things. Trumpet number five. Given that according to the code, the number five signifies on the one hand the grace of God, and on the other hand the absolute destitution of man, needy for the grace of God, we should expect to see something related to both grace and the abject neediness of mankind. A star from heaven. Revelation 9.1 Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had been falling to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. The fifth trumpet is blown, and this ushers in one of the most pivotal moments in the Revelation narrative. For it is with this trumpet blast that the beast from the abyss the demonic being who will possess the man we call the Antichrist is released into the world. 
sticking with the code and its idiomatic use of stars, it's clear that this star from heaven refers to an angel. Still, we must ask whether this is a good angel or a bad angel. The angel's origin or original domicile is the heavens, as with all the angels. But this angel had been falling to the earth, being rendered in the perfect active participle. We can conclude that it had fallen from heaven to the earth sometime in the past and remains in that state such that it still seems to the observer that it is falling. Thus, we are dealing with a demonic being, a fallen angel who's gone apostate from its original state and is continuing in its apostasy. The key to the bottomless pit or the abyss was given to this angel. We are not told when it was given to him, just that it occurred sometime in the past. This begs the question, what is the bottomless pit or the abyss? The abyss. The bottomless pit, also translated throughout Revelation simply as the abyss, comes from the Greek word abusos, which means bottomless, and friar, which means a hole in the ground. Where is the abyss? The demon had been falling to the earth from heaven. Therefore, it is likely that the entrance to the bottomless pit is located here on earth. This is not unusual. The Codex often addresses the merger of the unseen world with the physical world. It speaks of unseen dimensions that are present in our material world, but accessed only through the spiritual realms. In effect, there is a different dimension within our physical space in which those in the unseen realms exist and interact with our physical world. For instance, the Garden of Eden is on earth, but it is protected by an angel with a flaming sword such that it will never be found by man. And Sheol, what we call hell or the place of the dead, like the abyss, seems to be located in the inward parts of the earth beneath the oceans. Hence the idea that one goes down to hell. And Jacob saw a ladder that extended between heaven and earth, upon which the angels of God were ascending and descending. This ladder functioned much like a portal between the two realms. Jacob called it the gate of heaven. Jesus mentioned this portal, claiming that he was the very ladder which Jacob saw. We've already mentioned the gates of hell, which were physically located in the region of Bashan. They were also considered to be a gate or a portal for the demonic to enter from the unseen realm into the realm of humanity. What is the abyss? In Luke, Jesus was casting a legion of demonic beings out of a man, and the demons begged him not to command them to go away into the abyss. The demons were terrified of the place. Apparently, the abyss is a place of punishment of which the demons are familiar, and they want nothing to do with it. This phrase is also used in Romans, where the Spirit integrates a passage from Deuteronomy into his message. However, the Spirit changes the original Hebrew rendering from sea to the abyss. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This fits the idea that there might be some overlap between Sheol, hell, and the abyss as they are places for the dead which are located within the inward parts of the earth beneath the oceans. A place for the dead. The abyss is clearly a place for the dead, but dead must be understood figuratively. In other words, these angels do not technically cease to exist. Rather, they are alive and held in prisons of darkness. 
This the abyss seems to be the angelic counterpart to the bad part of Sheol, which we call hell or Hades, which is the place of internment for the human soul, which dies without knowing Christ. The human soul similarly does not cease to exist upon death, but those who do not immediately find themselves in the presence of Jesus find themselves bound in Sheol until the great day of judgment when Yahweh causes Hades or hell to give up its souls. What Sheol is to the dead of mankind, for those who do not know Jesus, the abyss is to the dead angels. The abyss is a place of internment that terrifies demons. The Codex contains a couple of other references to the abyss, the most famous being what we studied in Jude, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Second Peter also speaks to these pits of darkness to which the angels who sinned were cast in judgment. Thus, the abyss is a place of internment, a dark prison to which angels are cast when they cross a certain line of rebellion. As to its location, Second Peter is extremely specific in that it says that these pits of darkness, technically chains of darkness, are in the deepest part of hell and a place the Greeks called Tartarus. If men are cast into what we generically call hell, what the Bible calls Hades, which is on the bad side of Sheol, the abyss is some deep, dark chamber accessed from within the lowest parts of Hades. The use of Tartaros is fascinating, and in 2 Peter is the only time it is mentioned in the Codex. The word comes from Greek mythology, and it refers to a deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as a prison for the titans, the pre-Olympian Greek gods, which we would know as fallen angels or demonic beings. The abyss is a pitch-black, bottomless pit inhabited by these angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. These angels did something so horrible that Yahweh has chained them in this place of darkness, waiting for the moment at the end of time when they will finally be released. The Beast and the Abyss we will find that the beast has been interned in the abyss and is released along with these other angels who sinned. In fact, one of the defining aspects of the beast is that one of its heads, he has seven of them, had been slain, but his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed. Three times this issue of the fatal wound is mentioned, so we are to take note of it because this is a perfect clue to our understanding, the identity of the beast. The one head had died, or in the language of Yahweh, had been assigned to the abyss. What are we to take from this? We will find that the term beast is layered and refers not just to the individual spirit who is released from the abyss, but also to the ruling entourage or the kingdom that is led by the beast. This next explanation is a preview, but it will help our understanding as we go through the text. When we are first introduced to the great red dragon, an image for the Satan, the devil, Lucifer, his image is having seven heads and ten horns. This image communicates that the dragon rules through an inner council of seven demonic beings. They are his chief commanders and strategy council, and they in turn have authority over ten other demonic beings that are their might or their enforcers, hence the image of horns. When the beast the spirit is released from the abyss. 
The dragon gives the beast his throne, power, and great authority, essentially the seven heads and ten horns. As such, the beast is also imaged as having seven heads and ten horns. It's how the dragon supercharges the beast so that upon his release from the abyss, he is so much more than what he was before he entered the abyss. Now, he has to rule over the inner council and the enforcers. Oddly, after this event, the dragon has a very small role in the Revelation narrative as all the attention is turned toward the beast. We'll find out that before his atonement in the abyss, the beast was one of the seven heads, part of the dragon's inner council. And upon his release, he is supercharged, so to speak, by the dragon's grant of his power, throne, and great authority, the seven heads and ten horns, such that the beast becomes far more than he was before. Thus, the image of the beast is a layered image of both the spirit and the kingdom of spirits over which he is given charge. All of that to say that the beast, while previously exercising authority as one of those seven heads of the dragon, was killed or in code assigned to the abyss. But the head of this beast will be healed or released from the abyss and the world will be amazed. Speculations about the abyss. According to the book of Enoch, there were 200 angels who made a special pact with each other to leave behind everything in terms of their angelic roles, responsibilities, and positions in heaven, their proper domain, and come to earth to have intercourse with women. Apparently, their plan was an attempt to commingle human DNA with angelic, believing these corrupted genes would spread throughout mankind. The effect of this corrupted gene pool would have been primarily to ensure that when the Messiah died for the world, he would also die for the fallen angels represented through the angelic DNA thereby providing the means for the fallen angels to be saved or redeemed from their fallen state. The reasoning would be as follows. The Codex tells us that to effect salvation for mankind, the Messiah had to be a man. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Therefore, if mankind's DNA was corrupted with angelic DNA, then the Messiah would have to be made like man in every respect. Thus, he could then be a merciful high priest that would take away the sins of both the people and the fallen angels, who otherwise are eternally doomed. The book of Hebrews is clear that God did not give help to the angels, but to the descendants of Abraham, those who are now believing and now overcoming. It is likely that this was the scenario they were trying to avoid. They might have also thought that since the Messiah was to be born of a woman, that this genetic corruption would spread so far and wide that eventually even the mother of the Messiah would have this genetic mutation and would pass it on to the Messiah, again, hoping to ensure salvation to the fallen angels. Clearly, they did not contemplate that God did not need any genetic material from the Messiah's mother, for though she would bear the child, she would merely be a carrier who is implanted with a completed zygote, which did not carry any of her DNA. Now, according to the book of Enoch, Genesis gives us a description of the attempt by angels to commingle their DNA with the daughters of men. And that is how the giants of old came to be. Clearly, we do not know for certain if this tale as told in the book of Enoch is a true rendering or is just folklore. But we do know that there were giants and that these angels who were in the abyss 
did something very, very bad that they had to be locked away and chained in these pits of darkness. This also means that the beast, in one of his incarnations of power and authority, also did something so terrible that he deserved to be assigned to the abyss. There are clues to this in the Codex, and it starts with understanding the name of the beast. But more on that later. Satan and the abyss. Satan is also going to spend a significant amount of time in the abyss. During the time of Yahweh's reign on the earth after his second coming, Satan will be shut in the abyss for 1,000 years and bound in chains, so he will not be able to deceive the nations during his internment. The abyss is therefore to be understood as a terrible place for the worst of the worst. Therefore, the one thing we can expect from these nefarious creatures interned in the abyss is that upon their release, they will be enraged with such pent-up fury and hate that this first woe will be well-earned. It will not be pretty. The door to the abyss is opened. Revelation 9-2. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Both Job and the book of Enoch indicate that the abyss burns with fire which along with the darkness is probably why this is such a horrific place. To me, this also makes it so intriguing that the abyss seems to be located within the inward parts of the earth and the lowest parts of Hades in Tartarus, which as we know, is a place of molten fire. Again, we have no idea how this intersection of the unseen and the seen interact, but I think this whole thing is fascinating. It's much like the Garden of Eden that is present on earth even today but it's completely inaccessible by humanity. The intersection is there, but it favors the unseen realms. Thus, when the lid to the abyss was tapped, the exhaust just billowed out, and it was so great that the sun and the air were darkened. This is probably like what happens when a volcano vents and fills the air with ash. Everything becomes darkened. There is nothing in this image, by the way, that leans towards a figurative interpretation. Rather, it cries for a literal interpretation because air is not used in the codex as part of the code. Thus, the sun and the air were darkened is likely exactly what we will experience. The demons are released. Revelation 9.3 Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as scorpions of the earth have power. Demons like locusts with scorpion power. We must understand what is being communicated in this imagery. Locusts are the scourge of Asia, Asia Minor, and the Middle East, and are dreaded beyond any other plague. Locusts move in giant swarms, and they devour every green thing in their way. Nothing is left untouched. They are undiscriminating in their desire for anything and everything that is green, and they do not leave their tasks undone. They can literally strip a land of all its vegetation. For example, during the Exodus narrative, the eighth plague of Egypt was a devastating swarm of locusts. It was described as follows. Exodus 10, 14 through 15. And the locusts swarmed over the whole land of Egypt, settling in dense swarms from one end of the country to the other. It was the worst locust plague in Egyptian history, and there never has been another one like it. For the locusts covered the whole country and darkened the land. They devoured every plant in the fields and all the fruit on the trees that had survived the hailstorm. 
Not a single leaf was left on the trees and plants throughout the land of Egypt. These demons from the abyss are described as locusts because they move like an advancing army to devour and destroy. That is their nature. They are a curse and a plague. And if it were not for the limitations placed on them, they would be undiscriminating in their destruction. They would go after everything that has some sort of spiritual life within their being, which is imaged using the color green. These demons have a unique superpower, the power of scorpions, the power to sting and torment. Now, the sting of a normal scorpion is usually no more serious than the sting of ants, bees, or wasps. However, some species can inflict potentially fatal stings. Mild symptoms include pain and swelling at the sting site. Severe symptoms include muscle twitching, sweating, and drooling. For example, the sting of a bark scorpion can be extremely serious, producing severe pain and swelling at the site of the sting, numbness, frothing of the mouth, difficulty breathing, respiratory paralysis, muscle twitching, and convulsions. Thus, if the power which these locusts possess is anything like the bark scorpion, it's no wonder people will want to die. Limits to their power. Revelation 9, 4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not now have the seal of God on their foreheads. It is likely that these demons are so infuriated at their incarceration that they will move out of the abyss like a deadly swarm, purpose to harm anything and everything in their way that has spiritual life. Thus Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of Heaven's armies, the true master, restricts their activity. This is an important point we must always remember in our day-in and day-out life. The demons, the beast, and even Lucifer can only do what Yahweh Sabaoth, our Lord of Heaven's armies, permits them to do. They are not free agents, as they would want us to believe, and they exercise no independent power. Rather, they are bound to their principle, Yahweh. He alone determines their boundaries and their activities, their permissions, and so on. He is the one who has given them their power, and he can always take it away. Take comfort in this powerful truth. The locust demons are permitted to harm only those who does not now have the seal of God on their foreheads. It's rendered in the present tense. Being oddly rendered in the present tense, we know that even today there are people who do not bear his mark, just like there are those who have already been sealed by Yahweh and are marked by his signet. Thus, the issue of people being sealed by Yahweh and not sealed is not an event reserved for the tribulation period. It is happening even now. In that light, we can understand that God provides protection for his chosen ones, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. But how do we make sense of the fact that these locust demons are not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree? Green grass. This is an intriguing question, especially since we know that with the sounding of the first trumpet judgment, one-third of the earth, one-third of the trees, and all the green grass was burned up. This image that one-third of the institutions of man, political, corporate, financial, a third of the great leaders of man, the trees, and 100% of all those people who still have some sort of spiritual life within them, the green grass, were pulverized and consumed by the fire of this judgment and marked with blood for destruction. In fact, this judgment sets the stage for the great apostasy, 
So how is it that if all the green grass was burned up, we get another mention of green grass and a specific restriction on these locust demons to not harm the green grass? According to the code, grass is a reference to people. And green grass, as opposed to brown grass, is a reference to people who have spiritual life within their being. Perhaps this is a specific reference to the called of God. Those in God's household who have yet to make the choice to be a chosen one of God, they took step one and were born again, but have yet to take step two and make the choice to become that little child dependent upon Yahweh for all things all the time. A choice that without which they will not enter the kingdom of God. The implication is that after the first trumpet judgment where all the green grass was burned, there have been others who have become born again and have chosen to receive Jesus into their lives. Perhaps this is a result of the combined efforts of the white horse and its rider. Those witnesses referenced in Revelation 11 who are prophesying during this time and an angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. God is so merciful as he provides three means, a perfect way for people to hear the truth about his majesty and to receive him as Yahweh Adonai, or to at least honor him and give him glory. This blows my mind. Even though he is pouring out his judgment on the world, he is still busy securing life for those who want to have life. And perhaps the reason he does not permit the locust-like demons to touch this newly sprouted green grass is because he wants to provide them a protected time in which they may choose to take step two and become the chosen of God. Yes, even this newly sprouted grass, these new believers, as the Spirit says, are given the power, the liberty, or the right to dig down deep in their soul and choose to become children of God, even those who are now believing in his, Jesus' name, which is Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh provides them a measure of protection so they will not be like the seed that was sown on rocky places or among the thorns and which does not grow into maturity. Any green thing. As far as any green thing, God seems to be preserving anyone in this world that has some measure of spiritual life remaining. All those who have not given themselves over to the beast. This likely is a protection for those who are deemed to be righteous. If you remember, the righteous are those who treat the Lord's bondservants, Yahweh's little children, with care and compassion and did not abuse them. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Although they are not born again, in some way they have received Jesus and the Father, and are therefore afforded a measure of protection. The righteous are not the bride of Christ, nor are they the called, but they are honored before God and before the Father for how they treated the children of God, and they will not lose their reward. Still, they must refuse to take the mark of the beast, and they must endure to the end to be saved. And that light, this protection from the torment of the locust demons, is much needed, because they have a long road to endure. The trees. In terms of the trees, the leaders of men, the Greek has two words for trees, zulon, 
which simply means a piece of wood and which tends to refer to a withering tree or one that is dead and dying. The second word is dendron and refers to a living growing tree, one that has green leaves and which is expected to bear fruit. In this instance, the spirit uses dendron. Thus, similar to the green grass and any green thing, we should understand this reference to the trees to refer to trees that have green leaves and perhaps even fruit. Thus, these leaders of men will have spiritual life and some might bear fruit of that life. This is encouraging. Despite the trauma and the invasion of our world by the demonic, there will be people around, including leaders of men, who have enough spiritual life within their being to reject the beast if they so desire. God will ensure that despite the terror of these times, certain leaders will have the capacity to endure to the end as they look for the coming of the Messiah. Those without the seal. But woe to those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads and who have no green, no life in their souls. Yes, as with the blowing of the second trumpet, those fish who were alive but died are in for a time of terror and pain. Sticking with the imagery, locusts search for green grass, green leaves, green foliage to devour. However, given their limitation by God, it is likely that these locust-like demons are going to be beyond angry. These demons have been locked away for a very long time in a place whose darkness is beyond dark, and they are ready to do some serious demon damage and devour all that is green. But God puts some serious restraint on them. In effect, they are only going to be able to torment those people who are following or who are likely to follow the kingdom of the beast. How is that for God's judicious irony? Five months of torment, Revelation 9, 5 through 6. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death now flees from them. It is notable that the lifespan of an adult locust is up to five months. So the bug imagery holds true. But it is also a powerful image on the abject neediness of mankind and the grace of God symbolized in the number five. Without grace, without God's 100% provision and protection, mankind is vulnerable to the demonic. For those who are now having ears to hear and eyes to see, Unmarked mankind being subject to this five months of torment will be like the exclamation mark on this reality. Mankind needs the grace of God, and without it, they will suffer in torment, and there will be no escape. Now, unlike the fatal bites of certain scorpions, these demons are not permitted to kill anyone, just to torment, literally torture them. The language, however, is not clear if it is their sting which causes a person to be tormented for five months or if they will only be given this power to torment for a duration of five months, meaning that they might have only five months to sting as many people as they can. However, given their role as enforcers of the beast's agenda, which we'll get into when we're given an understanding of their duties, it is likely the former, people being in torment for five months after being stung. Given that this torment is like a scorpion, and the effect is that people will long to see death, their torment will likely include severe pain and swelling at the site of the sting and some combination of numbness, frothing of the mouth, difficulty breathing, respiratory paralysis, muscle twitching, and convulsions. And there will be no antidote and no remedy. It simply must run its course. 
The statement that men will want to die but death flees from them is odd when looked at through the code. Men will seek, future tense, death, and will not find it, future tense, and they will long, future tense, to die, eris, tense, and death now flees from them, present tense. It's almost as if this is a curse which even now falls upon the people who do not have the seal of God. In other words, this torment is their destiny. When the time comes for their torture and torment, there will be no easy escape through death. Death literally even now flees from them. And being in the indicative mood, it is to be understood as a statement of fact. They must face the full terror of this judgment. The Spirit is communicating through code that these people who now exist separate from the grace of God have an appointment with these locust-like demons and with their unique form of demonization. And they cannot escape the torment It is their destiny. We will stop here and pick up in our next podcast with the odd yet very specific description of the appearance of these locust-like demons. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T. H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.